0: hi 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 how's it going it's going I'm worried now I have the shades open and the sun's coming in which I'm not gonna be mad about sun in December but I'm now worried I'm gonna get sunburned on like one oh no you know like when you drive too far and you get it on the just the driver's side of you Mm -hmm. um so if I make some adjustments halfway through I'll try and let you know about sound Awesome. Um, I also realize as I'm sitting down, I am like two seconds from airplanes and literally on the train tracks. So Avoid. if shenanigans occur, I will let you know. <laughs> or Fabulous. you just might hear some kids playing. It's a busy day. You know,
1: <laughs> we like a little bit of excitement.
0: So you're going to hear maybe a little ambiance that is new. Nice. Um, but yeah, I fully went to bed at eight o'clock multiple times this week, which is a new normal. That I'm just trying to, like, ride out and be like, this is when my body's saying to go to sleep. I guess we're just on those circadian rhythms now. Circadian? What are they called?
1: I think circadian, yeah.
0: Circadian? Um. Oh, Frankie's deciding to get up now. Uh, Oh, does
1: that mean you're also getting up at, like, five in the morning?
0: I wish. I set my alarm for six, and then I sort of lay there for an hour, um. So it depends. We haven't quite got on the rhythm of the morning yet, but the rhythm of the evening is like crawl into bed about seven thirty, fall asleep by eight. Last night I tried to watch. Um, I was like, "Ooh, let's like snuggle in, like watch a movie. It's a Friday night. Let's do it." And I wanted to watch um, that. Do you know about John Lucare? Do you know that he passed away? Recently?
1: Yeah, but I don't know um, Tinker something soldier spy. Yes.
0: So I've wanted to watch that movie for a long time, but I was always I like, I don't know if I could do that much beige <laughs> and like <laughs> melodrama of like the Cold War. And sometimes I'm just not into a Cold War story because I don't find them very compelling.
2: Totally. But I
0: watched um, I watched an art I watched an interview with him on CBS when he passed. And I was like, I don't actually know about him, but he seems to be very admired, so I should I should learn about him. And he is so He's such a good interviewer. And mm-hmm. his whole life story made me very interested. And then they were talking about his work, which made me interested. So I was like, well, maybe I should give this another go. And I watched the trailer again for Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spine. I was like, I could get into this. Let's see what happens. Put it on 20 minutes in. Out like a light. <laughs> oh,
2: no. Out like a
0: light. Because as predicted, very beige, very calm, very British. A lot of like pensive looks that I think were telegraphing more to me than I realized. I was like, I think I should have maybe read the book. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of context that I'm not aware of. Um,
2: which
1: is all hard to pick up on when you're very tired.
0: Yes. I finished it this morning. It is very good. Um, Gary Oldman is very, very good. And, um, just a lot of British boy talent all over that movie. So I do recommend it. Um, it's fun. And, you know, if you like spy stuff, there's some there's some um, tension. <laughs> oh, bless you, Frank. Frankie didn't like it, but... Ah, um, uh, of course. Um, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, it is a lot of beige, though. The 70s. Whew. We're at a rough time for color. A lot of brown, and what do we couple it with? Yellow and orange. How about that? That'll go great. Just all warm tones. Oof. Oof. Just all over. Yeah.
1: I'm glad we've moved away from that.
0: Gross. Sort of like watching The Crown. The crown this year, too, or mm-hmm. it's just kind of like brown and sad. I mean, a couple times you, you get a little jewel tone in there, but
1: <sighs> I wonder if that's truly like how everyone felt in that period. If they looked around and they were like, guys, we're brown and sad right now.
0: We're brown and sad. We need some glitz and glamour. I don't know. But I
1: guess it is sort of, right as a response to the like the 60s and the sort of explosion of color and everyone's like, OK, maybe we do yeah. need to tone it down just a little bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's weird that in the same era there's leisure suits and like periwinkle blue tuxes, Mm -hmm. and then there's like mustard yellow finishings in the house at all times, and like brown carpet, and I don't, (laughs) you know, the Volkswagen Beetle green stuff going. It was an odd time. We just didn't quite know how to deal with anything. No. Also, everything is like, I think the other thing is like nostalgia makes it like everything's tinged with cigarette smoke. So I think that has something to do with it, too. Mm -hmm. Like, even if the room wasn't brown, like there's a brown haze everywhere because everyone's (laughs) smoking all the time.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Ugh. Ugh.
0: Yeah. So anyway, you want to talk about some people?
1: Yeah. Um, Who's first this week?
0: I think it's me because the last one we did was hygiene mm-hmm. and I did toothbrushes. You did toilets first and then I did toothbrushes.
1: Yes, it's all flooding
0: back to me now. <laughs> Remember chewing sticks? Got to go buy some. I know. I I'm now I'm now investigating all my toothbrushes with a lot more um criticism. <laughs> Knowing knowing I could just go chew a stick instead. I'm like, a toothbrush really has to bring it now. For sure. But my flossing game has seriously upticked since we did that episode.
1: It's funny. I noticed the same thing. I was like being much more careful about my flossing. Yeah. I was like, well, I don't have a stick around.
0: Yeah. I'm way more intense about my flossing. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if you saw, Michael. Oh, my God. The new creepy trend is like people getting veneers. I don't look it up because it's terrifying. But, like, young, healthy people with good teeth are, like, getting veneers when they shouldn't. And they're calling them veneers, but they're not. They're crowns. And they think they're veneers, and it's not the case. And Why? They're doing, like, irreparable harm to their teeth. Because everybody wants the, like, the creepy, like, flat teeth, you know? Where they're all one size. The, like, Tom Cruise teeth. Why? I don't know, because we can't have, like, normal people teeth anymore. Like, Americans are weird about... Not only do we need teeth, but we need big, shiny, chiclet teeth that are, like, almost blue. They're so white. And these young TikTok kids are like, oh, not good enough. I need, like, crazy teeth. So that, I don't know if you know how to get a veneer, but they have to, like, sorry, trigger warning if you don't like teeth stuff, which is awful. But, like, they have to, like, shave your tooth down. To, like, nubs. So then they have these, like, weird, it looks like a... It's it haunts my dreams. I wouldn't recommend looking it up. It's terrible.
1: Yeah, I mean like we were talking about disgust last week and this is one of those things that apparently triggers some disgust responses in me that I was unaware of. But teeth filing. I have to add that to the list.
0: Yeah, teeth. Teeth is a thing. Well, people dream about teeth all the time, right? I had a rec- I had a dream a couple times where like I had larger than average teeth and then my front, I don't know, what are those front two top teeth? The big, the big boys, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them had like a full, like Swiss cheese hole in it.
2: Ooh, in the dream, that's like grim.
0: cartoony almost. But it was, yeah, it was very. And then I've also had the dream where all your teeth fall out, which I think is one that a lot of people have.
1: Yeah, that's the one I'm familiar with. I don't, I don't think I've ever had it.
0: I've heard a couple of things where it's like you've regretted something you have said, or you're having trouble saying something. Something having to do with how you're coming across but
2: mm-hmm. it's creepy it is Ugh. no thank so you so let's
0: let's segue away from that because i'm still thinking about the veneer teeth people and how they will haunt me um and i want to talk to you instead about a true hooligan alice roosevelt are you ready
1: i don't know i've never had someone introduced to me as a true hooligan before
0: she's a she's a trip and we're gonna go on it together I'm Michael. And I'm Katie.
1: Welcome to Missing History, a podcast where each episode we discover the people absent from history class.
0: Spoilers, they're usually female identifying.
1: We uncover their stories, investigate their impact, and discuss how they've been ignored or sidelined. Today's episode contains strong language.
0: Teddy. Theodore. Uh, Roosevelt. You may have heard of him. Familiar. He looms large in the history of America. We're not going to talk about him, though. Well, we will tangentially, but he's not the focus. He um, he meets Alice Hathaway Lee uh, in the late 1870s. He's an upcoming star in local politics um, from a pretty good family. Roosevelt's a big, pretty good name, but the Lees are also from a well-off family at the time. They are very smitten with each other. They uh, quickly form an attachment and um, marry in 1880. Both take a step up in the social circles and they sort of are the talk of the town. Um, They have a wonderful newlywed time and Alice becomes pregnant in 1883. That summer, they purchase a big chunk of land in Oyster Bay so that they can build a huge house for their gigantic family they're about to have. And I don't know if you know this. I found this out. There are two branches of the Roosevelt family. There's the Oyster Bay Roosevelts, which is Teddy Roosevelt and Eleanor come off of. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Hyde Park Roosevelt, which is where you get Franklin. So, And both chains go way back and are actually descended from the Schuyler family. Made famous, fascinating a musical, yeah.
1: So they're like old, old money.
0: Oh, as old as New Amsterdam herself, and um, the Schuyler family actually has its its web of roots through many, many prestigious New England families. One of which was the Roosevelts to this day, and then also the Bushes are related to that. Get into that Wikipedia page; it's a deep dive.
1: Oh my, okay. So old. Crazy old money, like long term rich people. Crazy
0: old, yeah. A lot of we're getting into Gilded Age wealth now, so these people just boom it up. Um, but that you know, the Roosevelts are having a great young life, and they're you know, Alice is very beautiful. Teddy's clearly got some charisma and some pizzazz going with him. He's heading for great things even then. So they're sort of the the peak of the age. Um, February comes. Alice is due to give birth any day. Teddy goes away to Albany for some, for, uh, I think he goes to the assembly, the New York assembly. Um, February 12th, he's away from home. Alice starts going into labor. He had left, even though she was close to her due date, because the little love-struck boy that he was, he knew that their first child would arrive on Valentine's Day, so he thought he had an extra couple days. Oh, that's how much of a smitten kitten he is, <laughs> you know what I mean? He's just a lovesick fool. So he gets the telegram. Alice is going into labor. He immediately starts making preparations. He's got to go meet his new child and support his wife. Um, as he's prepping to leave or on the way to the train station, because it takes forever, uh, he gets another telegram saying that she's not doing great. You need to hurry, because oh no, childbirth up until very recently and even still today, very dangerous business. So. Mm-hmm. He motors on home. He also finds out that his mother, who lives close by, is suffering from typhoid fever within Ooh, the same day.
1: That's that's a very 2020 right? day right there.
0: It's a bad day for Teddy and all involved. So he gets home. His wife, his mother is ill. His wife is ill. The baby has just been born. It's a girl. They name her Alice as well in honor of the wife. Common thing to do. Um... But he doesn't really focus on the baby because his wife is so poorly. She's all, like going in and out of consciousness. She's basically comatose, um, and bedridden, which is not. I mean, like it's dangerous business to have a baby at this time. But this is another degree. Like she is very poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, 3 a.m. on Valentine's Day, his mother dies of typhoid fever. Oh boy! And within a couple hours, his wife dies from an undiagnosed uh kidney condition, which was called Bright's disease. Basically, the the kidney puts too much pressure on the other organs, and high blood pressure. Having the chi- uh, they thought that the pregnancy probably masked some of the symptoms.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and she passes away. She was twenty two years old. Oh my God! So, bit of a one two punch for old Tr.
1: Yeah, you could say that.
0: He is devastated uh his diary entry which uh there's a picture of online his diary entry for that day is a huge black x and then just one line that says the light has gone out of my life so he takes this really well as a new father of a young girl not that it matters i think he would have done this if it was a boy too but who knows um so he immediately like gives his new baby daughter alice to his sister called baby uh the sort of you know, spinster aunt
2: mm-hmm.
0: slash, you know, extreme confidant for him. They have a really good relationship for a very long time. And there's a lot of conversation that if Bamey had been a boy, she would have been president. She's equally smart and charismatic and intelligent. Interesting. So, um, there's clearly a bond between them. He's like, you will take care of my child. Um, he rips out other diary entries about, his wife, he burns all of their letters from their courtship. he He goes on record of saying he will push the feeling down deep inside Oof. and never speak of it again. Um, he decides to never speak her name again, which is complicated because he's named her his daughter the same thing. so
1: yeah, how how's that gonna work for him? And more importantly, for his daughter?
0: Um, I think she, well, you know, The nice thing is, he leaves her for a couple years, so he doesn't have to think about it. And when she's a baby, they don't... You know, she's a baby. Woo, woo, woo. Totally. But he, like, gets the heck out of Dodge and leaves her with Bami, his sister. So he doesn't really have to talk to her um, for a while and abandons his child. Um, He doesn't abandon her. He, like, you know, he's having a lot of feelings. I don't hold it against him. Kind of do. He's, you know, the parent. But, you know... Bami does right by her as best she can. Anyway, uh, his daughter is called Baby Lee for a long time. And then, well, we'll get there. He starts calling her other things. At one point, he calls her Mousykins in a letter. I don't want to talk about it.
1: <laughs> Hold on. Mousykins?
0: Mousykins. Okay. There are letters that he writes to Bami, his sister, to talk. He's like mildly concerned about his child. So he does say, I hope Mousykins will be very cunning. I shall dearly love her. So, I don't know. That's, I guess, you know, parenting in 1880s. No one's really good at it yet. So, <laughs> um...
2: Yeah.
0: Alice begins to grow as into a small child. I think there's a certain amount of, um, indulgement. Indulging upon a small child who was left by both of her parents <laughs> at a very young age. One willingly and one not so much. So, um... Aunt Bainey or Aunt bye was, uh, a very doting caretaker and apparently had a book-filled Manhattan house, so, um, Alice grows up devouring literature and becoming very intelligent herself, so, uh... Yeah, very quickly. Okay, so I don't know how much you know about Teddy. He goes to the Dakotas. He has a ranch out there. He um, spends two years doing that to kind of deal with his grief in an 1880s way, Mm -hmm. trying to find a way to keep that rock of sadness deep within himself. Um, He comes back to New York, and he reconnects with his friend Edith, uh, who actually lived next door to his family growing up, so they had a connection way before he got, first got married, and this connection was rekindled, and they she ends up becoming his second wife, in 1886. So once they remar- once they marry, um, she brings Alice into her home as her stepmother, and then has five children herself. So Alice has five steps or uh, half siblings, and. Um, they sort of start to figure each other out, but Alice is now four years old, five years old, uh, and has developed a personality on her own. And there's a certain amount of like indulgence that Teddy gives her. She seems to be as spoiled, um, mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. Uh, maybe the fact that she reminds, um, Teddy of himself and she's very much of his temperament with a lot of things. But she becomes... Well, she doesn't become. She is intelligent, stubborn, and strong-willed. So hard to control her. And I think they just didn't quite know how to deal with her because she truly didn't care about what they thought of her, which is interesting. That's So hard to control a young child when they're like, yeah, I don't really give two hoots what you guys say. I'm going to do what I want. Mm-hmm. This becomes her uh, mantra for the rest of her life. So... She grows up with her five-half siblings. Um, they make their way to Washington and New York City as the different positions of Teddy kind of take them on. So he becomes the police chief and the governor, and he serves in Washington as um, some committee chair at some point. And at one point, Edith and Teddy are kind of at their wit's end uh, with her kind of escapades, and they Edith suggests that they send her to an all-girls, conservative school to kind of rein her in, you know, really good time. Mm -hmm. And, um, Alice apparently writes back to them. If you send me, I will humiliate you. I will do something that will shame you. I tell you, I will. They believed her. Yeah. So they did not do that. I could see why Because she's pretty good to her word. Maybe the fact that they don't call her Alice is a big deal. And so she's like, I don't know what my name is. Wow. This is complicated. Okay. She, uh, apparently this caused some tension, with her stepmother edith um there is there is language later that she actually admired her stepmother a great deal but in the youthful indiscretion of like teenage nonsense that comes out of people um edith doesn't hold back and insults her dead mother <laughs> to her face and Oof, it gets tense not great, not <laughs> it gets tense great. yeah yeah it gets a little hard sometimes but you know alice self describes herself as uh pretty wild so she doesn't hold it against her later and does does compliment her stepmother edith later saying like she had a hard job to do having to deal with me and you know she's described as impetuous and stubborn and fiercely intelligent so the press begins to take notice of her as she starts to make a name for herself and this is also as newspapers are sort of coming into their peak if you will Mm -hmm. um president william mckinley names her dad teddy Vice president after the previous vice president dies of a heart attack.
1: Hate to see it.
0: Republican president, Republican mm-hmm. vice president. It's TR's big moment. Um, Alice doesn't hold back that she thinks the McKinleys are beneath the Roosevelts. She has a lot of, you know, elitist New York pride with her family name. Um, and she thought that vice president wasn't good enough for someone like her dad. <laughs> Just she doesn't hold back. It's what we'll learn about dear Alice.
1: And she's not wrong but also rude
0: she's super rude about it yeah and so mckinley's shot by an anarchist in 1901 and passes away after a week of uh, poor effect to that occurrence and so her dad becomes president alice is completely excited and quite uncouthly um parades it around as if, like, a great thing has happened for the country. Oh, boy. (laughs) You know, maybe not the most sensitive uh, to, you know, the mortality of a president. But, you know, she's pumped about it. She becomes a celebrity. She moves into the White House. She is all of 17 years old. So let's put it together. She's ridiculously smart, funny, beautiful, and a teenager. It's a very dangerous combo any Lifetime movie will tell you. Oh, of course. So... She, So they move in 1901. Um, I think it happened in the fall. So he's president by the winter. And January 4th, 1902, she has her coming out party as a debutante. Which I don't know if you know about that whole fiasco. They still do it sometimes. But you reach an age and it would have been almost her 18th birthday. So you sort of present your young uh, daughter to society as a... I, my... Mean opinion of it, which isn't very gracious, is like, "Hey, here she is, ready for the taking. Somebody marry this person, so that she can go be somebody else's problem." I'm sorry, it's the ultimate for her. You know, she mm-hmm. gets to go be married. This is when we tell everyone that she's ready to be married. So,
2: yes, oh boy,
0: she's uh she gets presented. It's quite, you know, and now she's the president's daughter. Whoa, what a what a catch! She wears a light blue dress um she's all the rage she's the most fashionable the color is so popular because of how she wears and what she wears that it becomes known as alice blue it gets sold out off the shelves there becomes a song about it later as the musical theater starts to pump out so (laughs) she makes quite the statement press starts following around more um finding that she's a bit more outspoken than they realize and then she uh gets more of a following so then <laughs> this weird turn happened. Kaiser Wilhelm's rolling around, okay, okay, <laughs> okay, but it's before World War One. I. I just want everyone to remember that, but he's rolling around he's still in good he's still in good company right now because it's nineteen o two Um he has a yacht named the Meteor, and he thinks Alice is so charming and the daughter of the president that he asks her to christen the yacht as a goodwill gesture. And he thinks like, oh, if I befriend this president's daughter, our nations will have good like cred with each other. It can't hurt, you know, Germany and the US. What a great idea. He sends this cousin or a relation of his, who's another prince of Germany to come and like be in his um, place
2: mm-hmm. for this
0: christening of this yacht. And it's apparently just quite the to-do because this prince keeps touching Alice on the arm. Which in 1902 is akin to like getting out of the car with, you know, your legs open or something. I don't know. It just oh, made them all oh boy, freak out. Oh so, and because it was a prince, she gets dubbed in the press as Princess Alice, which she is so down with. And <laughs> there's always this constant thing in American, and especially at this time in the 1900s when they have more money than sense, that um, there's this sort of repulsion and attraction to the monarchy by Americans. Mm -hmm. So the press just latches onto that and they start calling her Princess Alice. And, you know, she thinks it's because, I mean, if you're at the age of eight or nine, you tell your parents, like, I don't care what you think, I'm going to do whatever I want, then the press isn't going to sway you either. And that sort of holds true in her adolescence. So she sees all of it as a big farce and what it is and doesn't take it too seriously. So... She's like, sure, I'm Princess Alice, whatever. Um she gets invited to the coronation of the future King of England, Edward VIII, and this is all around the same time that her cred is getting more and more amplified and she she's also coinciding with her coming out. So she's a bride to be called Princess Alice. Is Teddy Roosevelt going to try and get her into a significant marriage in order to like have good relations with another country? So going to a king's coronation is the perfect time to sort of rub elbows with all the potential mates for her. Right. Mm-hmm. Seen by the American. Po- oh, who's she going to marry? Oh, she's up in, Oh, she could go marry Holland's King or blah.
1: And like that, my understanding is that's a pretty big thing at this point is for like wealthy American daughters to marry like European aristocrats.
0: Yeah. I don't think it's been done yet, but it's definitely like significant. And because she's being elevated so much. In the, I don't know if it's ever timed out well enough that he has a marriageable daughter. She's brilliant and popular and funny. She is clearly um, charismatic to Kaiser Wilhelm and his whole German delegation. So it's sort of like the cred is amplified, and so speculation begins to
2: mm-hmm.
0: overtake what's actually happening. So then it's, and then it, I don't know if any of this sounds familiar, but it just sounds like tabloids of today, of like. Nonsense becoming actual news. Yeah. Because the newspapers need to sell these things. And she's clearly a hot ticket to talk about. Um, And she's sort of unencumbered by social norms. So they love her even more. She doesn't care what anybody says, including her dad, who is the most powerful person in the country. So that sort of gives her clemency to do whatever she wants. Mm -hmm. Um, And she does. So (laughs) she gets invited to the coronation and then there's all of this talk in the press in the public in the in the royal sphere of like where will she sit which i don't know can you imagine the decorum for a coronation
1: oh boy cuz
0: she's been called princess alice she's the daughter of a head of state should she be treated like we would treat a princess or or whatever, and so they decide. Well, if she comes, she'll be treated like the honors of the eldest daughter of an emperor. So then the Americans hear that and they go, no, no. Well, some of the Americans they go, no, no. She's not a royal. You need to treat her like any American woman. And they tra- so there's all of this like infighting and gossip and nonsense. Mm-hmm. So much so that she decides this is not. Well, she decides. Teddy decides. Somebody decides. This is too much. I'm not going. It's not even going to happen. So instead, she gets to go to Cuba just on a, on a trip because <laughs> Teddy's like, I'm sorry, you don't get to go to our nation. I feel bad. I'm a guilty dad. Go to Cuba instead. So she goes and parties in Cuba for a month. Of course. Um, as soon as she gets back, the press is like thirsty for what she was doing. And she um, acclimates or she uh, pacifies them by driving in a car by her. Well, with a friend solo. How oh, dare she? A and this is just driving. I know. Unchaperoned, drives a car herself. Oh my goodness. What a Yeah. Um so as her dad commences with his presidency, she goes um f- with the following escapades. She is banned from smoking within the White House, so she goes up onto the roof and smokes. She's seen publicly smoking in her own car. She drinks mm. gin. She goes to the racetrack and makes such a spectacle of herself that she's like as um, fought for as the thoroughbreds. And she roads in. Oh, and she also, from her youth, she rides around in cars with men without a chaperone, stays out all night partying, often not waking up till afternoon the next day.
1: Oh my.
0: Places bets with a bookie, and smokes cigarettes in public. There's also tales of her dancing on top of tables at parties. I mean, then it starts to spin out of control. Um, in 15 months, a Paris newspaper... So as soon as... Oh, I'm sorry, let me tra- backtrack. So as soon as she's like starting to get talked about by Prince or Kaiser Wilhelm and the King of England, basically she becomes a worldwide celebrity.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So then all newspapers are starting to talk about her. So much so that a Paris newspaper notes... A tally of her exploits that in 15 minutes she attends 407 dinners, 350 balls, and 300 parties, often staying out all night long. That
1: just sounds exhausting. In
0: 1902, this is wild. This is wild. And she's sort of the only one that gets to. So, Alice, being the smart one that she is, loves the attention so much so that she often calls the press to give tips about herself. <laughs> To get the money for the tips. So she gets the money for lying or like giving stories about herself. And then she shows up at the place and showboats for him and gives him the story. Like she just is outwitting them all. It's pretty fascinating. Incredible. 1903. She gets to go to Mardi Gras in Puerto Rico. She's greeted as if she's royalty. Crowds gather no matter where she goes. It's basically as if a princess is there. When she gets back, he Teddy buys her a car for some reason. Oh, I guess she does give him, like, some pretty good publicity, too. Mm-hmm. Like, there's there's charisma by association. So, in Thanks, he buys her a car, which is what she most dearly wanted at the time. And she drives it solo around town, speeding and constantly getting pulled over and ticketed. <laughs> so, he tries to do his due diligence by giving her a car. He then takes it away from her. So then she'll just borrow her friend's car and carouse around. Of course, like you do. Eleanor around this time, Eleanor Roosevelt, who is uh, betrothed to our future FDR, right, wrote in a letter, Alice is looking well, but crazier than ever. Apparently they didn't quite get along. Damn. Um, Wilhelm, well, he's recurring for some reason. Of all, So Wilhelm, after the success of the yacht and all the good press that she gave them. He decides to make a new naval ship for the German Ar- Navy. Uh, he decides to name it the Alice Roosevelt because of this wonderful time they had, not actually meeting anyway. That's a little uh, desperate,
1: I do have to say. Like
0: so, de- <laughs> so desperate. But isn't it ironic? Then in ten years, they're all going to fight each other.
1: Yeah, what happens? Does that does that ship get like sunk by an American or something? That would be too perfect.
0: I, they might re. I would think they might rename it <laughs> in a few years because it doesn't go down great. Um, but at the time, he's sort of like riding the wave of Alice Fever. As I said, she's making an international name for herself. So he names a naval ship the Alice Roosevelt, and they ask her for a picture to put in the like ship as like a good omen, right?
1: Hmm. Apparently, it fights through World War One.
0: Oh God. Yeah, I think it is renamed though.
1: Wow, wild.
0: Anyway, big deal. Well, that's also seen with like disparaging thoughts by both sides where it's like you shouldn't be getting all of the. You know, everyone likes to have comments about how a woman should conduct herself this time more than any. But once again, they found an impenetrable opponent in Alice Roosevelt. She did not give to Jake's way they thought. So she's like, yeah, name a boat after me. Whatever, I'm going to my car. <laughs> 1904, she goes to the Louisiana Purchase Exhibition. Once again, crowds abound for this most popular lady. Um, she, with her uh, typical candor, would often go into the Oval Office and uninvited and just give political advice to her dad without um, invitation and uh this is on wikipedia once a white house visitor commented on alice's frequent interruptions to the oval office often to offer political advice the exhausted president commented to his friend author owen wister after her third interruption into their conversation threatening to throw her out the window he also is on record of saying i can either run the country or i can attend alice but i cannot possibly do both wow
1: okay dad
0: Making her mark. And I don't know what the parenting deal is with Teddy. He seemed like a pretty tough guy. But when Alice came into play, he just didn't know how to deal. Or he felt guilty for abandoning her as a baby. I don't really know. Or she was too much like him, so he didn't know how to deal with himself. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, but...
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: <laughs> um, something they had in common, she later said of Theodore, he wants to be the bride at every wedding, the corpse at every funeral, and the baby at every christening. So
1: so maybe, yeah, a little too similar.
0: She had his number read, but I don't know if she had the same deal for herself. Anyway, 1905, he tries to capitalize on her goodwill again and sends her... With several congressmen to Asia as a goodwill ambassador. Um, they try to make, you know, positive relationships with Japan, China, the Philippines, Korea. It was the largest diplomatic mission she had been on. And 23 congressmen, seven senators, diplomats, officials, and businessmen. And the Secretary of War, William Taft, goes with her. I mean, it's a big, big old voyage. Um, mm-hmm. She's quite the shenanigans while she's there. Uh, Apparently, during the cruise to, to Japan, she jumps into the ship's swimming pool, fully clothed, and coaxes a congressman to join her in the water. Years later she would get chided about the incident and she would reply that it would have only been outrageous if she had removed her clothes and that she reminded everyone in her autobiography that there was little difference between the linen skirt and blouse she had been wearing and a lady's swimsuit of the period. So get off her back. She stands by her actions.
1: Fair enough.
0: (laughs) Um, It goes great. I will say it is on this diplomatic travel that she becomes engaged or, or right after she returns she becomes engaged to one of the congressmen that was on the trip, Nicholas Longworth III, mm. who is a representative from Ohio. Um, they apparently gets serious in 1905 during the cruise, and he's apparently a bit of a ladies' boy, ladies, man- ladies' boy, playboy, ladies' man, whatever you want to call him. Had a reputation mm-hmm. and was 14 years her senior. So I don't think... I think Taft was there too to sort of. I think there are stories of he was supposed to kind of rein, rein her in, but he didn't do a very good job. And mm. uh, Longworth sort of. They, I don't know what they liked about each other, but something. I don't know. I didn't read much about him. Um, so, oh, the great destiny of a young woman in the 1900s has occurred. She is going to be married, and she's the president's daughter, so she gets to have a White House wedding. Um, Woohoo! It's attended by more than a thousand guests. I read somewhere that she wore a blue wedding dress in her Alice Blue fashion. Don't okay. know if that's verified, but I like the visual. And here's my favorite story: thousands of guests, or I'm sorry, thousand guests, thousands gathered outside because, basically, a royal wedding, American style. Mm-hmm. Um, they start to go to the cake cutting. She is so frustrated about how slow it's going that she goes up to a soldier, pulls his sword out, and slices the cake up herself with a sword. Yeah. In, in the White House.
1: Why is there not a movie about her?
0: I don't know, but what a party that was. If that's the vibe at the cake cutting. Yes. It's a great, it's a great wedding. (laughs) Boy, do you have stories from that night.
1: If, if you remember them.
0: Yeah. So immediately after the, they uh, go on their honeymoon, they go to Cuba. Q- they really love Cuba. They go to Cuba. They visit her in-laws in Cincinnati. They then travel abroad to like their more formal honeymoon. They travel to England and the European continent. They have dinner with King Edward VIII, Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, Lord Curzon, William Jennings Bryant. I mean, they just hit all the highlights. And she's basically treated like a visiting dignitary. Um, I guess Kaiser Wilhelm needed to make eyes at her over dinner, finally see the picture to go with the ship. 1908, another one of my favorite stories. Um, she's known as a bit of a prankster. So one of the things I didn't talk about in some of her escapades is at some point she is given a pet snake, which she names Emily Spinach. Hold on. (laughs) We're getting into her as a prankster. She names it Emily Spinach. Emily after her spinster aunt bit me. Spinach because it was green. And she repeatedly pranks people at public events by hiding the snake and then revealing it to unsuspecting people to, like, get them. Um, so that's <laughs> something a woman did.
1: Who in their right mind was like, this, this girl needs a
0: snake i don't know if she got it for herself she got it as a gift i can't remember but that poor aunt that she named after here's my other favorite this is from a new york times article in 1908 washington may 11th the washington times this afternoon printed, or is i say new york times washington times this afternoon printed the following like the naughty boy with the tack mrs nicholas longworth daughter of the president played a cruel joke on a man in the public gallery of the house of representatives today Mrs. Longworth had found a tack on the floor of the executive gallery and put it in a seat in the public gallery, which is separated from the executive territory by an iron railing. A man came in and sat on the tack and proceeded to jump into the air with all the force of a bullet discharged from a modern rifle. She had been sitting in the gallery a few moments and was beginning to look decidedly bored when she espied the Tack. She put her hand under the iron railing and placed the tack with a mathematical precision on the seat in the public gallery. There followed a period of intense suspense for the president's daughter. Every time the door of the public gallery opened, she looked slyly around to see if a victim had arrived. Finally, he did arrive. He's a middle-aged, dignified, and weighed down with the importance of hurrying to a seat and hearing every word the legislators said. He sat down, accomplishing the motion with a slowness, which characterizes stiffness of the knees. Mrs. Longworth looked intensely pleased. Then, like a burst of a bubble on the fountain, like the bolt from the blue, like the ball from a cannon, he sprang into the ambient atmosphere, painfully conscious he had come into close contact with something sharp. He seemed angry. He glared around. But the president's daughter was looking away.
1: (laughs) Amazing.
0: So she is having a great time. That is when she is a married woman to a representative. She's just up there. They're hammering on about tax codes, and she's like, I am bored to death. I'm going to pull a six-year-old's prank."
1: That's incredible. That's beautiful. Do it.
0: Yeah. And it made it into the New York Times. I'm just saying. The New York Times and the Washington Times. It's just wild. 1909, TR has to move out of the White House. President Taft is elected. She apparently buries a voodoo doll of the new First Lady Nellie Taft in the front yard. Which is weird, because I thought the Taft... I thought she got along pretty well with the Taft, but uh, clearly not Nellie. It's
1: a little aggressive.
0: Apparently later, after the fact... I don't know if she liked anybody that went against her dad, so... She would often criticize the Taft White House in public, and so she was en- She ended up getting banned from the White House. Cool, cool, cool. Um, 1912, she... Publicly supports the Bull Moose pr- candidacy that her dad is in. So I don't know. That's when he sort of tries to divide the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, she She's a daddy's girl to the end. So she uh, fully supports her father. But her husband actually stays loyal to President Taft. They apparently were a close relationship. So there's a, a bit of a strife awkward. in the marriage at that point. To the point that, like, man, does Alice double down. She goes on stage with her father's vice president candidate in her husband's district.
1: Oh, Oh boy.
0: So he ends up losing that term. He ends up losing that election by 105 votes. And she ended up joking publicly that she was worth at least 100 votes. So she took full credit for making her husband lose, which... Emasculation is never a fun look, but um, in this time it's definitely amplified that it doesn't go down well, so... Yes. uh, Yeah, he ends up winning again later and stays in the house for the rest of life. He even becomes Speaker of the House at one point, but it definitely takes a... Their marriage and union sort of takes a hit at that point. Woodrow Wilson is eventually elected in... She gets banned from his White House as well because she makes a joke at his expense publicly. She campaigns against the United States joining the League of Nations, which I don't know if you know, but it does not. I mean, that... Yeah, that does
1: not go well the for The US, U.S.
0: doesn't join eventually. So people wonder how much of an effect she had through her social connections with that since she truly didn't think it was worth joining. As I said, her marriage doesn't go super well. She and um, her husband are both... Uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Adulterous? No, I don't want that much judgment on it. They both sort of have different affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a long, ongoing affair with Senator William Bora B O R A H, and it is widely assumed and understood that he actually becomes the father of her daughter Paulina Longworth, which okay, her husband clearly knew about but didn't hold against her. So much so that she would even I mean, she wasn't really subtle about it. She once said that she should have named her child uh she should have named her child Deborah, Deborah as in D Bora, and that according to a family friend, everybody called her daughter Aurora Bora Alice. Like, it's yeah. Not a not a very not a very severe um secret. No. She would advertise for tobacco in the Great Depression because she did lose some money. Which, I mean, she's a Roosevelt, so how much did she actually lose? I'll have to check, but not... Anyway, she ended up having to do that. She published an autobiography around that time, and it sold extremely well. Um, she, uh, you know, start to get into the 30s, and another Roosevelt comes on the scene. But this is of the Hyde Park Roosevelts, clearly Democrats, Uh, Her family is clearly Republican. That meant something. And so she was quoted as saying in 1932 that FDR politically, his branch of the family and ours have always been in different camps. And the same surname is about all we have in common. I am a Republican. I'm going to vote for Hoover. If I were not a Republican, I would still vote for Mr. Hoover this time. So we all know how well that went. But here you go. Here's where it gets funky. So in 1940, she publicly proclaims, again, that she would rather vote for Hitler than vote for Franklin for a third term. She's really not a fan. No. But in 1944, she hates Thomas Dewey even more, and she compares him, um, she, what does she say? He's a pencil-mustached Republican and compares him to the bridegroom on a wedding cake, which I guess is a diss. Once again, she tries to, like, emasculate or cut down. Mm-hmm. And so the image stuck, and Governor Dewey lost two consecutive presidential elections. Well, damn. So they think she she didn't hold back when she really didn't like somebody. Um, her daughter marries a gentleman named Alexander Sturm. He was a big uh, inventor in the early... But he dies very young and suddenly in 1951. But they did have a daughter named Joanna in 1946. Paulina herself ended up... Uh, having an overdose of sleeping pills in 1957 and passes away. Before that, she and Alice had talked about what would happen to Joanna should something happen. To, I think when Alexander died, they probably talked about it, like
2: mm-hmm.
0: what, what they wanted to happen. So um, it was the understanding of daughter and Alice that Alice would take that on. But I don't think it was legally written down. So she had to fight for custody of her granddaughter, Mm -hmm. which she ended up winning and ends up raising her. And um, by all accounts was a very doting grandmother. But uh, she apparently learned some stuff about how great she was with Paulina and maybe changed her ways (laughs) in a lot of um, occurrences. Because apparently their relationship was really positive and really close. Joanna was described as a highly attractive intellectual 22 year old. Notable contributor to Mrs. Longworth's youthfulness. So they clearly helped each other out in the Joanna's lifetime. And the bonds between them are twin cables of devotion and a healthy respect for each other's tongue. Mrs. L., <laughs> as a friend, has been a wonderful father and mother to Joanna. Mostly father.
1: All sorts of, like, gendered things
0: going on there. So, so much to really, someone should do a deep dive on her again. Um, She did go by Mrs. L for the rest of her life when she got married. She was never known publicly as Alice. Um, She, in the 60s, okay, this is where it gets weird in her later life and her politics. Like the country, she becomes very confused. Um, (laughs) She does not like John F. Kennedy, but she loves the Kennedy family. I mean, New England, rich, white, family. They have a lot in common. Yeah. They're very charismatic. So she's like, ooh, I like those Kennedys, but I hate their politics. But she genuinely likes them. She loves Bobby Kennedy. um, Even though she could be a little harsh with him, and he was pretty thin-skinned about it, but they still seriously admired one another. And she voted, she apparently admitted to voting for Johnson over Goldwater in 64, because she thought Goldwater was too mean. Mm. She hated Joe McCarthy, Oh, she here's where we get into some good anecdotes. Loved Nixon. So she flips back once it's Ooh. Nixon again. Oh boy. She she became friends with him when he was vice president and when he um after Eisenhower's second term, she got in touch with him when he was back in California and they they were just good buddies apparently and would often invite him she would have these famous dinner parties and he would often be invited to those which is like really Nixon is the guy you want to hang your hat on okay um little did we know anyway so here's my couple my good these good stories that I like in the 50s and 60s here she apparently informed Johnson that she wore a wide brim hat so he couldn't kiss her Because she didn't really care for him. (laughs) And then Joseph McCarthy she runs into at some point where he talks to her at a party and he goes, I'm going to call you Alice. And she apparently tells him back, Senator McCarthy, you are not going to call me Alice. The truckman, the trashman, and the policeman on my block may call me Alice, but you may not. Damn. She is known for her kind of razor wit being banned from two White Houses, but she's still getting invited around as the daughter of a former president and a pretty good time at a party. So... There's all these stories of her showing up and kind of just raking these very, very powerful men just completely over the coals. And because she's so sharp-witted, they can't get a handle on her at all. And so there's this sort of legend about her of, like, you don't know what's worse, like, to be at the end of her wit or to be ignored by her. Mm -hmm. Both are pretty devastating. (laughs) Um. Yeah, so she develops this friendship with Richard Nixon when he's vice president. As I said, they continue to be friends. She goes to his daughter's wedding, Trisha Nixon, also at the White House. Sort of relives her her sword moment. I don't know. Um, There's a really good YouTube clip of her calling him. Or, yeah. her She calls him in 1972, a couple weeks after winning the election. Um. It's a real lesson in narcissism because he doesn't stop talking about himself the entire time, um, comparing himself to her dad. She is clearly warmly regarded by him and he, her. There's a there's a warmth there, but at the same time, you're listening to it. And it's ni- November of 1972, and you know he's done Watergate that summer. He even mentions Watergate. What? Which I didn't know it was in the... E- I didn't know it was in the ether that early, but he makes some reference of, like, you know, they he basically is, it's, he sounded like Donald Trump, quite honestly, because he's like, can you believe how harshly they were attacking us? They were uh, talking about the campaign. He was like, they were really going after us with all of this language. I didn't think they would attack us that badly. I'm sure your dad was uh, attacked in the press back then, but... Man, they're really... I've never heard anything like... They're really going after us. And they even brought up all that Watergate nonsense. Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, you little snake. You just threw it out like... That's wild. It's a a fascinating five minutes. But also listening to her voice. She is so old school sounding. She has that like slight mid-Atlantic Hollywood voice where it kind of sounds British, you know?
2: Yeah, for sure. Sounds
0: like from another time. 100%. She tells a story about her dad to him anyway it's an interesting it's an interesting little clip i think i put it in the show notes but her long friendship with nixon could you predict doesn't end great because of the watergate scandal um she he sort of takes a hit in her eyes she did not look on him favorably at that point point. and then he quotes her father's diary at his resignation oof and it's a diary entry when her dad was referring to her mother's death.
2: Oof. Oof.
0: So it's, like, particularly salt in the wound to her, where she's like, not only are you quoting my dad's words in a way that makes you seem positive and and standing on his shoulders, but you're citing it about something that affected me so harshly. Like, she was done with him at that point. And apparently... It was the quote, only if you've been to the lowest valley can you know how great it is to be on the highest mountaintop. And apparently, as he said that, she spat curse words at her television as she watched him.
1: (laughs) That feels appropriate.
0: She did not look kindly on it. There was an article called The Sharpest Wit in Washington published in the Saturday Evening Post issue of December 4th, 1965. And uh, the quote is, we walked to Mrs. Longworth's upstairs sitting room where she often reads till six o'clock in the morning. Books were piled everywhere on the tables and on the floor, and contemporary newspaper clippings were strewn on the side tables. Coyote skins were lying on the back of two large, comfortable chairs, and on one of the chairs was a pillow with the words, If you can't say something good about someone, sit right here by me. <laughs> so it is often thought that Dorothy Parker wrote those words, but according to this article... Um, Alice Roosevelt had him on a pillow before that, so. That's amazing. Uh, she's interviewed in 60 Minutes in 1974, and she states that she's a hedonist in that interview.
1: Love that (laughs) self-identification.
0: 90s, she decides to say that. Um, she does suffer from ill health later on in her years. She has emphysema and pneumonia. Um, she ends up getting a double mastectomy when she's diagnosed with breast cancer. And all of these chronic illnesses, um... Have her passing away um, February 20th, 1980, which is eight days after her 96th birth.
1: 96. Wow. She
0: was the last surviving child. She was the eldest and last surviving child of Teddy Roosevelt. That is Alice Roosevelt, wild child, Paris Hilton of her day.
1: That's incredible.
0: Yeah. She's freaking wild. And I want a movie for sure.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. That would be, I'm, I'm kind of deeply shocked we haven't made that yet. That feels like the thing, like period piece.
2: I
0: mean,
1: young, wild female lead. There's some TR stuff you can throw in there.
0: Well, I also think all of that is through the lens of a very specific feminine quality. So, like, what is. I don't know. I kind of want to read her autobiography, but like, everything is sort of tinged by gender with her. Mm -hmm. There's clearly a lot of admiration, a lot of spite, a lot of begrudging feelings towards her by. Her family, the public, the press. The fact that she manipulated the press so successfully is sort of... (laughs) Sort of fascinating to me. Um, And she really... Like, she put her money where her mouth is. But she... I think the thing that differs with some other celebrities is, like, she had the smarts too. Yeah. So she knew how seriously to take it and then when to leave it at the door. And sort of just glides through 90... Or nine decades with little impunity i mean she's pretty remarkable
1: it feels like she's bridging sort of those two different types of celebrity that gilded age socialite you're paying attention to me because my father has a lot of money or is important and i'm going to do wild things and the more like international 20th century i'm famous because i'm famous celebrities
0: does she not sound like she's doing the 1920s a full 20 years before it happens Pretty much. Yeah. She's like smoking, drinking gin, driving around her hot rod in New York City. Like she's fully in the Great Gatsby 30 years beforehand. So 20 to 30 years beforehand. So trendsetter to say the least. I know that was a little long, but.
1: That was amazing. Yeah. Do you want to take a quick break? And then my lady also has a really interesting childhood to talk about. I'm shocked. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. i want to talk about brenda lee i was trying to think if there was like a sort of christmas themed thing to do this week and realized we had done like a christmas episode in past years so couldn't just do that uh so instead went looking through some christmas music um and found that brenda lee is the person who recorded rocking around the christmas tree for the first time Oh! and then dove into it and i was like this is wild
0: Oh, really? Okay.
1: Yeah. So also like crazy childhood, but we'll we'll get into all of it. Brenda May Tarpley, who will change her name to Brenda Lee when she becomes a professional, is born in December 1944 near Atlanta, Georgia. Growing up, both of her parents are low-wage workers. Her dad's a migrant worker and her mom works at a mill, so they're often traveling for work don't have a lot of money, and the family basically bounces from home to home trying to find jobs. So not the most stable of childhoods, and Brenda, from a very early age, sort of finds music as the, like, point of stability in her life, in a lot of ways, like, a lot of similarities to, like, Dolly Parton which I think is like a, for me, was a helpful image to have in my head. Mm -hmm. So they don't have many possessions. Whatever they do have has to be pretty light to travel, but they do have this battery-powered radio. And so Brenda would stay up listening to it. By the age of two, she could sing along to most of the music she was listening to. And by age five, she started singing. By age five, she's singing in public, both as a soloist at their local Baptist church, but also to earn treats or a little bit of money at local stores. By age 7, she gives her first official performance when she wins her elementary school's talent show.
0: Oh, yeah, that's everybody's first official win.
1: Yep. Uh and so this is 1951 when the prize for winning a talent show is you get to go perform on the local radio station.
0: Oh, so cool.
1: Yes, and that kicks off the beginning of what will eventually be a pretty incredible music career for her. And what people are particularly drawn to about her is even at this young age, she sings like a much more mature vocalist. She has this deep, resonant, soulful voice, sort of mixing R&B and gospel and country. Sounds a bit like Buddy Holly in some ways from this like seven-year-old. So people are pretty stunned. And she's not, she's like a short seven-year-old. By the time she's fully grown, she'll be all of four feet nine.
0: Whoa, itty bitty.
1: Yeah, so just this very unassuming frame from which this yeah. incredible sound comes out of. She's gonna spend a couple of years sort of singing in the local Atlanta area. So when she's eight, her father passes away. And at that point, she starts helping her mother support the family. And Brenda helps doing that by singing at local talent shows, gigs on local radio shows. Uh, and because she is young and she is short, she sort of gets a reputation in part because every time she goes into the studio, they have to lower the mic all the way to the bottom of the stand to find a crate or something else for her to stand on so that she can actually reach the mic to sing. But she is eventually going to develop enough of a reputation, at least in Atlanta, that when this big sort of country show is in town recording, uh, she really wants to go see it. And so she convinces one of the like local DJs from the radio station that she performs at to introduce her to the head of the band, who's this musician named Red Foley. He directs this group called the Ozark Jubilee, which is this TV country music show um, of the type that are pretty popular in the '50s, where they have a live band and they play music and they're storytelling, and it's a whole thing. And she is super excited to meet him. And the DJ convinces him to meet her before the show and to listen to her sing. And Red is so blown away that he invites her on stage that night to sing a song with the band for their taping. No rehearsal, no nothing.
0: (sighs) No rehearsal stresses me out.
1: Yeah, me too. But (laughs) apparently it goes incredibly well. Uh, When Red talks about it after the fact, he says, I still got chills Thinking about the first time I heard that voice, there I stood after 26 years of supposedly learning how to conduct myself in front of an audience with my mouth open two miles wide and a glassy stare in my eyes. I just imagine him like standing next to her on stage, totally gobsmacked that the sound is coming out of this, at this point, like 10 or 11 year old girl. Wow. And Just like completely blown away to the point where he, almost on the spot, offers her a spot on the show. And overnight, she's basically the 1950s version of a child star. So she's 10, or I think maybe 11. She gets signed to what is a national TV show. And the same year is going to move to Nashville and sign with Decca Records. And so- Big deal. Decca's huge, right? I think so, yeah. And so 1957 rolls around. At this point, she is 13. She records her first top of the chart hit dynamite and she's basically you know a pop star not huge yet but how many other 13 year old girls are recording top charting pop songs at this point in the 50s the list is very short it is basically just her the song that she records is called dynamite and it earns her the nickname little miss dynamite which will stick with her the rest of her career
0: little miss is never something you want to do. The rest of your life, but okay. It's, it's not
1: great. And she will eventually grow out of it and get sort of that more August position, but especially early on, because it's the fifties, we don't do well with young women. That's what is going to stick with her. Uh, And it's interesting because it's very early in her career that she records the song, which is the reason I was interested in her and sort of her biggest hit at this point, which is in 1958. She records "Rocking Around the Christmas Tree," which is mm-hmm. written by the songwriter named. We've heard it once or twice.
0: No, like a few times. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I think it's something like the the number three, excuse me, the number three holiday song on the charts this year, uh, down from number two last year. Yeah, it's a big one everywhere, um, and it's written by this songwriter Johnny Marks, who also wrote "Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer" and a bunch of other holiday classics. And his thing, apparently, in the '50s was writing. Christmas songs. When she walked out of the recording session, she remembered thinking, "Like this is this is it. This is the big one. This is going to be a huge hit." Uh, and it unfortunately, isn't right away. Um, it only sells like five thousand copies when it's first released. Um, and interestingly, it's because Brenda Lee gets famous that this song ends up getting famous, and then it sort of outlasts her. But it's not until she really takes off that people realize. She has this Christmas song, and then everyone starts listening to it.
2: Oh, okay.
1: And so her career is really going to take off in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, for I'm, like, not super familiar with music, particularly, like, popular music at this point. But it's, as I understand it, a, it's a bit of a transition moment. We're not quite at the Beatles yet, but we're sort of moving away from early rock and roll. Like, Elvis and Little Richard are both sort of stepping away and we haven't quite gotten the Beatles and the British Invasion yet. So it's this middle ground. And into this opening basically steps Brenda Lee. She comes from a similar like country R&B gospely background to those early 50s rock and roll performers, but is going to take it in like a little bit more of a pop direction in part because that's mm-hmm. the direction her managers steer her in. They think that's the niche she can fill. And also because she has this incredible range, not only vocally, but emotionally, to capture these incredibly like heart-wrenching songs or wistful songs that performers two or three times her age would struggle with. And at this point, she's just like solidly a teenager, but is performing these songs that are incredibly powerful. Um, to the point where she is one of the few artists at this point who is able to attract both teenage fans the sort of young teenagers who are just discovering rock and roll and also their parents sort of that like rare crossover artist and she's also crossing over between genres so a couple of her songs like i wanted to be wanted and i'm sorry are both top 10 pop hits and also top 10 r&b hits which. From what I understand is like kind wow. of an interesting and yeah, sort of unusual thing at that time. So the the sort of the interesting arc of her career then is that her manager, who's a guy named Dub Albriton, thinks rock and roll is a fad. He doesn't think it's gonna last. And so rather than trying to turn her into, you know, sort of a pop or rock and roll superstar, he is more interested in making her sort of in the image of like Frank Sinatra or those other sort of late, you know. Forties, early fifties, mm-hmm. you know, kind of stylish, international, almost like club musicians, or they would like tour, but rather than doing big concerts, have sort of those more intimate club engagements. Or at least, like that's the sort of image I have in my head. Mm-hmm. And so, he pushes her music really strongly, not just in the U.S. but all around the world. And she is, in turn, going to become really one of the first international pop stars from Brazil to Japan to Germany to the UK, she develops this incredibly devoted following outside the US and is actually going to make it, she basically makes it big in the rest of the world before she makes it big in the US. So like some of her songs in the 60s are going to top the UK charts. uh, And in 1962, she's going to do a European tour. uh, And while performing in Hamburg, Germany, She catches some of her opening act and she's really taken with them. She's like, oh man, these like young guys are pretty rowdy. They've got some interesting music, like would love to go talk to them. And so afterwards she like goes and hits them up. uh, And this gentleman named John Lennon, who some people might be familiar with.
0: Ah, I knew it. It's like you said they were rowdy. Starts
1: chatting her up um, and they hit it off and turns out. So the Beatles open for her, for her sort of her residency in Germany. And then they developed this sort of like long-term friendship, at least to her and John. What year Lennon. was that? This is 1962. Whoa. So this is like this is before they've been made it big in the U S. Um, And she's just like there in Germany playing with them. And this is sort of pretty typical for her is like, she has these relationships with all of these other famous artists. And when she was interviewed, Uh, a couple of years ago and sort of talks about her relationship with these other famous artists. She's always like thinks of herself as a fan, which I think is really sweet that she's like this incredibly famous pop star at this point in her life and she's still just like really excited to meet other artists and she was like really interested in getting to listen to their music. Um, And so unfortunately even though she's really good friends with the Beatles, that's not going to save her from being displaced by them and the rest of the British invasion Mm -hmm. that sort of reworks popular music in the U S in the sixties. So even though she's going to spend basically the whole decade touring and performing and recording, and we'll have a couple of other top 10 hits, uh, the sort of early sixties are her peak. And by the end of the decade, she's pretty exhausted. She actually is hospitalized for a couple of weeks in the fall of 1970 at which point she is all of 26, so has just led this like incredibly fast-paced, exhausting childhood. Is just barely a young adult and has to be hospitalized for nervous exhaustion. Um, and over the next couple of years, is going to work through a number of health issues as she slows down just a little bit and tries to sort of recover from that really aggressive schedule in the 60s. Um, And it's also in the '70s that she's going to return to her country roots. Uh, She records a number of like top ten country hits, but at this point Hmm. she's sort of fading a little bit. Like, is still you know an artist who's capable of putting out music and getting people to listen, but is nowhere near the international phenomenon that she was in the early '60s. So it's at this point that she really transitions fully into country, basically returning to her roots, really finding that sort of new country sound. That's emerging primarily out of Nashville in the 70s and the 80s. And so she settles in Nashville. She does a residency at Opryland, which is the like Nashville country amusement park outside of the city. Um, And she's gonna be inducted into the Country Hall of Fame in 2000. um, Ironically, two years before she gets inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, because at that point in her career, she's really known for her country music. And interestingly, she is the only woman who is in both the country hall of fame and the rock and roll hall of fame
0: whoa okay
1: yeah which was a little surprising to me i sort of figured there would
0: i mean but that time period that's that's when they are the most kind of venn diagrammed right the like yeah her her era it makes sense like elvis could be both right like he definitely spans both in a lot of ways he has so much country in his sound but he's the king of rock and roll or whatever
1: for sure and it is yeah it is interesting because it's that transition point between those two genres as they sort of split fully and her management team is really convinced that like rock and roll isn't the thing that's going to last but they also don't push her as a country singer like even though a lot of her pop music has those same country sounds that she's going to return to in the 70s and that like elvis and little richard have they never release them on country stations in the 50s and the 60s Hmm. and so it's not until the 70s that she really develops this country music following which is going to end up defining her career for the you know 50 years since then and so the cool thing is she's still with us she lives in Nashville now sort of as like the unofficial mayor is how one of the articles I read put it. She speaks <laughs> and sings at events all around the city, often doing a lot of like advocacy work for women in the music industry, particularly like female producers and audio engineers and the people working behind the scenes. And like, interestingly has this this sort of amazing legacy that I didn't know anything about, which no one is surprised that I didn't, but that also seems to be less visible. Um, I know I mentioned Dolly Parton, who I think recently has sort of had this resurgence as this like incredible sort of popular culture icon in so many ways. Um, But Brenda Lee is of a similar stature in terms of the music she's putting out and the influence she has on other artists and on the genres that she's singing in people like Elton John and Kanye West and Alison Krauss all either directly reference her work in their work or talk about how hearing her perform influenced Their decision to become musicians, and so it's just interesting to see her touching all of these various points in the like ecosystem, and seeing all these other artists respond to her work. Even though I don't think she necessarily has the sort of public stature at this point that she should, given how important her music is to the to the industry as a whole. And I think Hmm. I I was looking at it, and so in the '60s, um, she's going to have more top 100 singles than any other female artist and is fourth only behind the Beatles, Elvis and Ray Charles. So is truly like in the, in the sixties is an incredibly what a popular figure. Crew. So I was just like, it was interesting because I, as, as we all know who listened to this podcast, I don't normally do the pop culture figures, uh, but it was just really mm-hmm. interesting to sort of dive a little bit into her life and get to know a bit more about that transition from country to rock and roll um, and that she's like still around and kicking after having what sounds like the most exhausting childhood of all time. Um, so she, cause she starts performing publicly at like seven whoa, and basically is performing nonstop for 20 years until she's 26 when she like takes a break for her health and then continues to perform basically nonstop until like the mid 2000s
0: that's crazy i mean i've never i don't well maybe i've maybe she's the kind of artist where it's like i've heard her sing other things but i didn't know they were the same person you know yeah she has that much range
1: yeah let me i I think i can pull up her version of rocking around the christmas tree because it's the kind of thing where like we've all heard it i think but we've also all heard so many other versions of it that it's great to just hear her sing it
0: main question does she still get royalties for that
1: I can only imagine she must.
0: I would hope so.
1: And that's probably serving her pretty well.
0: Very, very well. Yeah. <laughs> Wild.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting. I hadn't realized that there are like very specific rules for how the like billboard charts work. And it was only pretty recently that they retooled how holiday music gets charted. And so holiday music gets charted every year and not just when it's originally released uh, which is how she still has like number three holiday song slot even though this song has been out now for 70 70 years basically wow Um, but here's just a little bit of the original version
2: (laughs) rocking around christmas Party
0: hop. Mistletoe where you can't see every couple tries to stop can't see Rock me but i it yeah it's yeah i don't think of that person being i mean it sounds like a different era and it was but like to think that that lady is still around is sort of interesting to me i don't know i think of her like a patsy klein person you know like a voice of that time but not still kicking it you know yeah
1: and the fact that like she recorded that when she was 14 and i like would not be able to tell you that by listening to it
0: that's wild too i can't yeah that's a fully like 35 year old woman singing that yeah
1: exactly and i think that's the thing that i was like consistently blown away is
0: 14 is wild right. yeah that really wow
1: and that's just like that is her sound basically her whole life
0: wow yeah Who would have thought? I wonder if my, I have to ask my parents about that because they would have been contemporaries. Yeah,
1: I haven't gotten a chance to talk to mine either, but I imagine they must have at least been familiar with her at some level. So that's Brenda Lee.
0: Brenda Lee, you go girl.
1: Rocking around the Christmas tree.
0: Mayor of Nashville still, you said, right?
1: Oh yeah, unofficially mayor of Nashville.
0: Unofficially. Hope she's still rocking it out. Yeah, very cool. Two, two, two ones for the ages.
1: Yeah, with some pretty different but pretty wild childhoods.
0: You know what Dallas made me think of too, in terms of like the youth prodigy thing, is have you ever heard Julie Andrews when she was a kid? No, I haven't. So. She's legit like a childhood star, too, which I always thought of her as like really coming in her own with My Fair Lady, which she did. But she was also this vaudevillian kind of Mm -hmm. uh, protege when she was a real little kid and had this freakish octave range (laughs) like she could hit those whistle tone notes because she had tiny little vocal cords. But there's there's um, clips of her singing God Save the King or whatever at one of those Royal Variety shows. And she's like eight years old. Wow. And she sort of hits these crazy notes. Um, That's just what it struck me as. These little girls that were thrown into a lot of things, maybe prematurely, but then made like, then became like full on foundational people.
1: Yeah. And at least both
0: with the longevity.
1: It seems like they, they both have that sort of really long life that lets them get to the point where they are the sort of like august, whatever the like august statesman version of like former hooligans is in a way because at least at least it seems like with with alice that she's sort of really settled into that role of just like i'm here to like emotionally destroy people and to have a fun time while i'm doing it and that brenda lee has the opposite of that that she's there to like support and uplift people but also have a good time doing it
0: oh well, good one, Michael. Festive for the season. Very nice. Yeah.
1: Hopefully we can get this out in time for Christmas. Yes,
0: very much so. So it's next week. I know. You have all your shopping done?
1: If have all of my shopping done. I have one more present to wrap and some baked mm-hmm. goods to make. But then I will be ready for the holidays. Nice. Yeah, how about you?
0: Yeah, I think I'm all good. I think I'm all good. I didn't go crazy this year, and that felt good. I was like, we all have been through a lot. It's like cozy things and books and stuff. Like, that's all. Yeah, I think that's the move. appreciate each other <laughs> more than anything <laughs> else. Um, I do think Frankie is barking at me. Okay. So Shall we? Woman is in need of some food.
1: Shall we end it here, then?
0: Yes, 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 yes. Awesome. Well, from a continent away, bye, Michael. Merry Christmas. Bye,
1: Katie. Merry Christmas. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History.
0: If you have suggestions for people you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com.
1: You can get in touch with us at MissHistoryPod on Twitter or History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History.
0: If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Jen,
1: Catherine, and Marion for all their help on this project. And thank you for listening to Missing History.